0: so on days like today where I kind of do everything, it's one of those things where after I do that, I sometimes just want to, you know, do this, all right, all right, somebody new. Well, good morning. I hope that you guys have had a a good week so far, enjoyed some warmer temperatures yesterday or the day before. It's nice to see 20 degrees for a change on the positive side, not on the negative side. Um, And I hope that you are excited as we get to dive a little bit deeper into our next sermon series. I kind of prefaced it last week, gave an introduction, and today we're going to be looking at the office of the apostle. We'll glance at the others just a little bit, but this is going to be our main focus today. And as I said last week, you know, when it comes to things like eisegesis, what we bring into the text... It's important for us to know that, you know. And there's a couple of beliefs that are out there uh, revolving around the offices that are listed in Ephesians that we should know about. A common belief among Christians would be that the offices of the apostles and the prophets have faded away, but the other three are still good for today. Um, I I would say that's what I hear the most in different circles. Um, if you would disagree with that position, then you would perhaps tend to be more on that progressive, charismatic side of that spectrum and to say that all of them are good for day. Now, a lot of definitions and defining of terms would have to happen for good understanding within all of that. Um, hoping to address some of that today. But we need to be aware of what we already believe and what we're bringing into the text as we study these things. Because that's going to shape what we're taking out of it. But don't worry. It is for this reason, as your pastor, on behalf of all of you that I am a steward of God's grace, given to me for you. How mysteries are made known to me through revelation, that when you hear my words, you can perceive my insight into the mysteries of Christ, which wasn't made known to the apostle or made known to the people in the other generations, as it's been revealed to His holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit today. So have confidence. How are your alarm bells this morning? Some of you have the, I don't know what's going on face. Some of you have a smile because you know me too well. Touche. But if you could describe what I just said, what words would you use? Today we're going to back up in our reading a little bit to get some bigger context from just our passage in ephesians 4. so if you have your bibles open them up to ephesians 3. Um, i'll have other scriptures on the slides but this is a bigger chunk so i think that we need to just have it physically in our hands today so beginning in ephesians 3 verse 1 the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church." and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations for ever and ever. Amen. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he descended into a lower regions, the earth? He who descended, Is the one who also ascended far above the heavens, and he might, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ in love father as we pour over these words today i just pray that you would bring to our hearts and minds your truths and that you would help us to grow closer to you in jesus name i pray amen so as i was preparing for this message this week as i said last week i've got a a lot of just stuff i want to dump on you But as I was preparing, I usually read over the different books that I'm going to be going through. That way you can get a greater context, a good feel for what's going on. Um, And, and, you know, I I stumbled across that section in chapter 3. Maybe you were able to pick up on how I paraphrased or kind of tweaked what Paul said there to the Ephesians. Now that you see that Paul wrote it, does it... Change your opinion at all? Or do you see how I paraphrased it or tweaked it can show how dangerous scripture can be in terms of how it's being used? You think of Satan who quotes scripture. You see, the danger lies in the intent and the meaning as we're twisting that to be maybe more man centric, more selfish rather than giving glory and praise to God, which Paul does throughout chapter 3. We can see how dangerous things can be when we're quoting Scripture. It's a key thing for us to hold on to as we go through these different offices and gifts in our next series. See the beginning of chapter 3 is kind of this setup up to this point that he is addressing as he is going to get into chapter 4. And this point is a point of unity. You know, Paul is stressing the need for unity, showing how the Gentiles and the Jews are one body. And he is sharing this mystery with them. And it would be mysterious because these two people groups hated each other. You know, you think about how that would go worshiping under the same roof where you had these Jews who for years would look down upon the Gentiles because they're God's chosen people. And you want to become, you want to, you want to come to God? Well, first you need to become Jewish. Then you can come to God. Then we'll let you do that. And then you have the Gentiles. Why would I want to worship with these people? They're snobs. They're arrogant. They look down on us. But here's Paul urging them that they are to be united under the banner of Christ. People that would have to worship together after so many years of hatred. I think that this is highly relatable when we look at the denominationalism within the Protestant church in America and the world. We think about the different people groups, so those, those crazy charismatics, Presbyterians, Catholics, Baptists, those old people who love hymns, those young people that want drums in the, in the congregation. You know, we always have divisions that are present, that we can see, that we can point to, but yet we see a strong theme is to be united. Have you ever wondered how as the church, the big church, can ever be united? Do you think that that's possible i mean it's in scripture it's a calling it's a charge how do we go about doing that just a random thought for you to to chew on over the next few weeks as we look in chapter 3 uh, verses 7 through 13 we see more of paul's heart his attitude towards the revelation his his heart towards the gentiles And how at the center of everything is Christ. You know, in our teachings, in our worship, Christ is to be the central theme when it comes to grace, when it comes to our faith. Many times when you stumble across false teachers or prophets, um, the end goal will probably be something else. Or if it is Christ, there's a controlled way to get there, like circumcision. And we'll get into more of the modern day things here after a little bit. But in chapter 3, you see this passion that Paul has. He has this desire for them to know the depth of the love of Christ. To know and understand what God has done for him. The importance of the gospel message. That God loves us so much that he sent his son to be a sacrifice for us. It is a message that had to go out to all of the world. You look at verse 10. Verse 10 says this, So that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And we see a purpose verse right there for the church. God is going to use the church to carry forward this gospel message. Why? Look to verse 21. It is all done for the glory of God. To Him be the glory and all that we are doing. okay. These, again, are central themes that Paul continues to hit on in each of his letters. And as Paul approaches this next section in chapter 4, he starts by urging the people to walk in a, a manner worthy of the calling that they have received. It is a phrase that's used in general for the calling of the gospel message, the grace that has been given to them, and they are to do so, as it says, with humility, with gentleness, and with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now this is a calling to the individuals. We had just spent a few months looking at what it means to be keeping in step with the Spirit. And within the context of unity and what's being talked about with the Jews and the Gentiles, this, this phrasing about keeping in step and uh, having this unity has the feel of taking the plank out of your own eye type of thing where we are striving for that bond of peace. And again, thinking of the Jewish and Gentile contexts. Our context would maybe be other people within this congregation, other churches maybe within the community. And it is because of this urging for peace this, this urging for unity that Paul sets forth what Christ did in terms of giving of the gifts of grace and the offices. And we look at verses 11 through 13. It says, And he gave the apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. Why? Look at the next verse. To equip the saints for the work of ministry... To build up the body of Christ. For how long? Next verse. Until we t- all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. For what reason? Verse 14. So that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. And the end results would be in 15 and 16. So, you know, when we just read this passage for what it says, it seems like things would carry on in terms of the offices until unity of faith. The big word there is until. Until. And sometimes prepositions are just added in the English to help it make sense. I checked. It's actually in the Greek. So it's, it's in the Bible. And it seems like if we're believing that the apostles and the prophets have faded away, then we would have to look outside of this passage to show where that is in the Bible. Or we need to understand these terms a little bit better which is what I'm hoping to do through this series. So today we're going to be starting with Apostle. Next week we're going to hit Prophet, and then the following week I think we'll hit the last three. There's less controversy with those three. Should be able to go through them kind of quick. We'll see. So, my first question. What do you think of when you hear the term Apostle? And I want you to write it down. Write down your definition of Apostle. Identify the different definitions in your mind because this would be what you're bringing to the text. This would be part of your presuppositions. Thank you for the studious ones that are following instructions everybody else. Oh, it's in my head. I got it done in my head. I have teenagers. I know all the tricks. All right. Um, So, with this one, I think it's kind of tricky here. Since we're talking about the offices, we can automatically connect our definition to the 12 apostles. I wouldn't say that that's wrong because like many other terms that we have, we have a standard definition and then several other meanings that can be used within our understandings. And many times confusion comes in when we're crossing those definitions and those meanings within conversations. So let's just start with the 12 this morning. Who are the 12 apostles? Where's that Jeopardy music? So, uh, I do have some slides for us. So, Matthew 10 has the list of the 12 apostles originally. These are selected by Jesus at the start of his ministry, and they record them as the names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. Now, I put in quote, or in parentheses Judas, son of James, or brother of James, because that's recorded in Luke instead of Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. So those were the original 12. Then you had a scene in Acts 1 to replace Judas, um, and we also see a little bit more criteria there of apostleship from Peter as he's laying forth what is needed to replace him. So he says in Acts 1, So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. So we see this emphasis on being a witness. Your eyewitness testimony here was very important to their preaching in terms of what they were saying and and the message that they were conveying about Jesus. Um, And we see within Acts 1, Matthias is chosen to replace Judas. And what these 12 men then did, as Ephesians 2.20 tells us, is lay the foundation of the church with Jesus at the cornerstone. Through the Spirit, they performed acts of power to to confirm their ministry. They had authority to rule in different matters, And within all of this, we see a limited sense of our understanding of this term, of this function of the term apostle, 12 men that Jesus set up for a very specific purpose. But we also know that there are other people who are called apostles in the New Testament. Of course, you had Paul, the super apostle, the self-identifying apostle in almost every one of his books. What about Hebrews 3.1? Anybody know what that says off the top of their head? Who's called an apostle in Hebrews 3.1? More more trivia. So Hebrews 3.1 says this. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in the heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. That might make you start scratching your head a little bit. Galatians 1.19, but I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now, I will admit, it gets confusing. You already have two James in the original 12, and now James, Jesus' brother, gets added into the mix. I never knew James was such a popular name back then, but apparently it was. Uh, Acts 14.14, 14. but when the apostles Barnabas and Paul... Heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out. So, Barnabas is added into that mix. First Corinthians 15, this is an interesting passage. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised in the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve... Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. So here within this, we see the distinction between the 12 apostles and then all the other apostles, not a, a definite number that is there. 1 Thessalonians 2 6, a um, little bit of context. In 1 1, it calls out Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy as the authors to the letter. But in 1 Thessalonians 2 6, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. And then, just for your own edification, perhaps spending a little bit of time in 1 Corinthians 4, um, it The whole chapter talks about ministry of apostles. I was convicted by a few of the last verses there this week as I was studying. So again, a good place to kind of camp out and do some study this week if you have some time. So with all of these other examples, I think that's it, Paul. Yep. So with all these other examples, what are we to make of all of these other people being called Apostles. I mean, they're alive at the same time as the original 12, so they're not replacements. Uh, We have instances like in Acts 15 where we see James, Jesus' brother, having a word of wisdom and having the final say on the whole circumcision debate, and the 12 agree with what James says and go with what he says. So he had some level of authority there. You know, what we find in Scripture is this... Same term being used to define differing roles and meanings. In the general sense, apostle literally means one who is sent. So then we can see why Jesus is called an apostle in Hebrews. It also means someone who is charged with a task. In the New Testament, it is applied to those who carry the message of the gospel. So, in its basic understanding, it is one who is sent with a message. And at times, the word can be translated as messenger. 2 Corinthians 8.23 and Philippians 2.25 are those examples, where in the English, you will see messenger, but in the Greek, it's apostolos, the term for apostle. The Greek word itself was used in similar functions in a lot of secular writings in the time. Throughout history, we see different definitions as well. Origin, uh, early church father, um, define or said this about the understanding: Everyone who is sent by someone is an apostle of the one who sent him. So that when you add religion into the term, it can refer to a messenger, whether human or divine, sent by God to reveal messages or to reveal the message of the gospel. So another viewpoint upon that spectrum of some of the offices have ceased or they're all good today, that doesn't get a lot of traction because it's not as extreme as those two, is seen in our missionaries and church planters as being called apostles, which by definition, they would cover. So I think as we go over these topics, being able to speak clearly on what we mean when we're talking about the different subjects would help with our understandings you know the issue that i find in dealing with terms like this is when it comes down to authority you know i think with many of the distinctions that we find in the bible it usually comes down to authority and if our authority is the word of god then that's what we need to go by right i think we can all agree with that but it's usually when the bible is silent on a subject that we need to be careful with what we're assuming into situations because that's when abuses can happen. And again, I would say that there's abuse on both sides. You know, you think about the ceasing part, you know. Um, The part about that is there isn't something definitive in the text that says that the offices have stopped. And again, depending on how we're defining apostle, in what context... And how it's being used, I think, matters a lot in terms of making sure that everybody is on the same page with what we're talking about. So an example of this, um, we don't agree, we don't subscribe to what the Catholic Church teaches, but it is their tradition, it is their belief that the Pope succeeds Peter. He carries on that office uh, of authority that Peter held as an apostle. They have a system for authority, at least. How does that work in the Protestant churches? Who or what is our authority? Generally, we will say God's Word is our authority. And I would agree with that. But I would also say that we can point out to different patterns of what that authority actually looks like. Because it generally starts with us. We read the Bible, we have our own thoughts, our own opinions, we're our own judge of what the Bible says. Then we usually find a church that kind of agrees with what we already agree with, and we start attending there. Maybe we have pastors that we look up to, authors, church leaders that are prominent figures, the MacArthur's, the Pipers, the Sproul's, unless they have some moral failing, the Zacharias's of the world that we look up to for some guidance that we would say have different authority over the Christian faith. Maybe if we belong to a denomination, we have denominational presidents that we respect. Our local church pastors or elders, perhaps. But again, I think it really comes down to how we are reading the Bible. As I said, I agree that the Bible is to be our authority. But then what do you do with what we're talking about now when you have brothers and sisters who disagree with what we're saying but also are using the Bible as their authority to lay claim to what they believe? Who is the judge in those situations when things may be taken too far? In the day of social media, it seems like public opinion seems to reign which leads me to another organization that we need to name and that is the New Apostolic Reformation the New Apostles if you will very big in the movements the Bethel movements the Vineyard movements the International House of Prayer again I don't as a pastor, I like to name names or demonize people. Um, and you know, you read their statements of faith, they seem to be pretty spot on. I would agree with a lot of what they say. And I'm sure that there are many people within these movements that are believers in Jesus Christ as their Savior. Perhaps treating them as the variety of believers, if you will. But the differences and the dangers within these movements lie within their beliefs on apostleship to where around 500 verified apostles are within their organizations that have authority to govern the new global church. And they rely heavily on Ephesians 4, 11 through 13, and this term, until. Since the until has not happened, the offices are still good, and the mantle of authority is to be taken up, which they have claimed. And this, again, poses the question, obviously, of who says it's to be you. They go by biblical standards. They receive the calling from Jesus. They have verified acts of power. They're seeing Jesus in visions and dreams who gives them revelations. Now again, I think that they're mixing their understanding of the definitions, they're combining them, so to speak, to be kind of a catch-all thing for this term, apostle. Within their teachings, the new apostles and the prophets receive new revelation, and we'll get into this a little bit more next week with the prophets, but when I think of new revelation... I think of those light bulb moments that go off as you're reading the Word like, oh, that's what that's supposed to mean. It's new to me, but it's in the Word of God. It's not extra-biblical. Extra-biblical revelation is what I would be taking issue with. You know, the Bible teaches us to test everything back to the Word. It tells us do not despise prophecies. The Bible says that. So we shouldn't despise prophecies. Instead, we should test them to what the Word of God says because that is where our authority lies. So, for instance, you had all of the prophets, apostles, and pastors that prophesied that Donald Trump was going to win the election. How did that turn out? We're able to weigh that to what happened. It didn't come true, thus false prophecy but it's something that I would also call as extra-biblical. It had nothing to do with what the Bible says, but they're making prophecies about that. They also believe that as the church worldwide unifies under their leadership, they will grow in their supernatural powers and thus be rewarded in the new kingdom. Again, scriptural because it's the bema seat of Christ that they're talking about, but twisted because it's I'm going to get the reward. The focus is on me. Yes, we will all be rewarded for how we serve Christ. But Christ is to be the center, not me. So again, close, but you can just see that subtle twist in there and it can become dangerous. They become rock star-like. You know, we we see how as they are rewarded, um, they also have... Uh, more of a view of a kingdom now dominionism style so it's more post-tribulation to where they as the the church are ushering in the kingdom of god for jesus when he comes back rather than jesus is coming to usher in his kingdom so again again division of scripture and how to understand it post-tribulation pre-tribulation all of that kind of fun stuff from Revelation. Um, but they hold more towards that strong, extreme dominionism kingdom now here. I personally believe Christ is in us, can transform us, can impact our communities in the here and now, and the Spirit can be used here and now, for sure, but not to that extreme of ushering in the kingdom. That's Jesus' job. So, a lot of what, again, that they have written down is pretty spot on. And what it comes down to I believe, is more of a Jesus and type of theology where you need Jesus, but you also need these revelations that we're giving you. You need Jesus, but you should also be baptized by an apostle. That way it matters more. You know, again, it turns their beliefs and their teachings a little bit more man-centered. Where they become the focus, they become more of the celebrity. And again, it sounds good in most instances, but we need to be careful to where it can steer us down. Um, Look in Ephesians 4, verse 14 with me. Verse 14 says, "...so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by waves, and carried about by every wind of doctrine." by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. As a pastor, this is one of my greatest fears right here. I mean, every week that you get up here and you have to faithfully handle the Word of God, I know I'm going to say things wrong. I just know it. But I never want to be deceptive. I never want to be scheming. I never want to be those types of things. And I think most people don't want to be either. Again, it's how it goes back to what I said about authority. Many times we're relying on ourselves for our own interpretations, how we see it, how it makes sense to us, rather than what the Word of God says. So many times we've created all of these theologies and these systems, but then we find verses that kind of go against the system. But I really like this system, so I have to make this verse say what my system says. And we tweak it and we alter it, and it becomes me centered. My goal is to never <laughs> intentionally do that, but I know that I'm going to screw up at times. I'm humble enough to admit that. You know, it, it's a high calling to be a pastor, to handle the Word of God, understanding that you know I don't want to play into a, a people-pleasing, consumerist type of attitude where I just say what you already believe and want to hear and things like that, but challenge you with what the Word of God says to make us a little uncomfortable with the attitudes that we've developed over the years so that we can have a genuine faith that pursues Him, that serves Him, that loves Him, that understands the grace that we have received to try not to abuse it one way or the other, but just to rest in the fact that we are his and how awesome that is that we get to worship God and serve him each and every day of our lives that he has given us. He is the ultimate authority. And I pray that as I am in a pulpit, that I can faithfully represent him knowing that I too am being sanctified in this process. You know, with the office of the apostle, I believe that we need to be clear in our meanings as we're using this term. There were 12 original apostles that laid the foundation of the church. They had a definite role to play. They were handpicked by Jesus. They will have thrones alongside of the 12 tribes of Israel in heaven. And there were also people that carried the same title as they did, um, but they had different roles. You had Paul who would go out and would plant churches. You had Barnabas that would do the same thing and they would stay with these churches and they would develop the churches and they would help build that local church foundation in Christ. And then they would go and they would do it again elsewhere. They would carry forward the gospel message. You know, God is our ultimate authority. As humans, we get get in the way. We mess up at times. And there have been abuses in the past and the present but it shouldn't negate our understanding of what the term simply means. One who is sent with a message. One who has been charged with a commission to take the gospel message to a new people group who has not heard the good news, but desperately needs to. We need to go and share that message and reap the harvest, setting up churches for the believers in order for them to fellowship and worship God. I don't believe, especially within the Protestant churches, that you can ever replace the 12 originals because of the qualifications that are laid out in Acts and Ephesians. I don't believe that Paul was just like the 12. I think he was different. I think he had a different role to play. But I believe that the Word of God lays out the need for apostles today and those who are sent with the message, with the gospel. Because the world and the church needs that. It needs those like Isaiah to step up and say, here I am, send me. Whether you call me an apostle, whether you call me an evangelist, whether you call call me a prophet, I just want to be used by God. And when we look at what the term simply means, one who is sent with a message, is that not a charge for all of us in the Great Commission? Let's pray. Father, as we study your words, I pray that you would continue to work in our hearts and our minds, that you would root out the different presuppositions that we have, the different things that we read into the text, and that we can lay it all at your feet. Lord, we humbly admit that we have errors in our thinkings. We we still have some selfishness that we struggle with. So, Lord, I pray that your Spirit would continue to transform and renew our hearts and minds, that we could be continually made into the image of your Son as we faithfully represent you. And, Lord, as we go along the way, we're going to make mistakes, we're going to mess up. But, Lord, that is why your grace and your forgiveness are so wonderful. Help us to be quick to repent as we see those different errors. Help us to be careful with the different messages that we listen to. Lord, not, not just the books, not just the podcasts, but even here. Lord, help us to weigh everything that we hear to Scripture so that as we are living our life, that we are living our lives worthy of the grace that we've been called to. In your name we pray, amen.